chapter 6, and the reading begins at the first verse. And you'll find the reading on page 1069 of the Church Bibles. So John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Sometime after this, that is, after Jesus had healed an invalid at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus then crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that, has, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Valerie. Do um, keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, we'll pray in just a moment. I wanted to just add one thing from uh, what Anil has been saying and praying about this morning, our visit from Compassion, uh, one of our mission links. Um, if I can encourage you, if you want to find out more about that, then do listen to the sermon, this morning's sermon online. And if you want to follow up what it might mean to link up, to sponsor, to pray for one of the children in that community in Sri Lanka then do come and talk to me. I have a number of their profiles if you would like to make that link. Uh, but the, the talk will be on the website in the next couple of days if you would like to find out more. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we pray that as we look at your word now, we would look with just attentive, open minds, ready to understand. We pray that by your spirit, you will give each of us fresh understanding of who you are. And we ask this so that we can follow you with more confidence, more courage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking through John's Gospel at a number of different people or crowds who have encountered Jesus. We've looked at Nicodemus, we've looked at the woman who met Jesus at the well, and now we come to this very well-known event in Jesus' ministry, the feeding of the 5,000. I wonder uh, if we can have the next slide. Are we on the PowerPoint? Maybe. Can we have the next one, but two? So that's where we're going today, looking at Jesus and the 5,000. I wonder how hungry you have ever been. I wonder whether there's a time that you can think about when you have experienced hunger, that gnawing emptiness, and that question, where will your next meal come from? Maybe you've been fasting, it's been a spiritual hunger. Maybe it's been a lack of planning and you haven't taken your, your packed lunch with you. Maybe it has been poverty or being away from a source of food. I guess few of us will know what it means to be really out of touch with a place where we can get food. What did it feel like when you were hungry? Hunger sharpens our thinking, at least to start with. We get a a fresh sense of urgency, of focus. But then I think hunger can distort our thinking. We can be swamped with questions around that, and we can get distracted or turned away from reality with that hunger. Where will our next meal come from? It can affect our emotions hugely. And then there will be a sense of relief and thankfulness when food arrives. Maybe for you that's a daily experience uh, as you prepare for each meal. The hunger comes again. But when our stomachs are filled, when hunger is dispelled, when our emotions are back in the right place, we can begin to think and function straight again. Or we can discover if we've been in that place of even more severe hunger, that when food is uh, arrived, when food arrives, life is rescued. Death by starvation is prevented. Fresh life is given. Have a look at our our reading, John chapter 6, page 1078. At one level, this story in Jesus' life reads about hungry people being fed. Not just a few, not a group, but a huge crowd. John lists 5,000 men, and so maybe 15,000 or 20,000 were there. And we see from the account that John gives that they were fed to complete satisfaction with so much left over there was no doubt at all that a miracle had taken place but I want to say that tonight this story is not a story primarily about hungry people being fed we may read it and think that's what it's about but I want to suggest that John puts it here for a much more significant reason than simply hungry people being fed. Nor is it a story purely about a miracle or magic with food. The evidence does, as you look at it, point to Jesus providing food miraculously. As John records this, I don't think there's any ground for saying 
that uh, lots of people were hiding their lunch bags because they didn't want to share it, and when this one boy came out and shared his, everybody shared theirs, and they all had plenty. I don't think there's any evidence for that at all. John doesn't give us that picture of it. What John wants us to see, and he gives a number of details that back this up, was that there was a troubling event here. Jesus was there with a huge crowd who were hungry, and it was getting late, and they needed food. Otherwise, there would be even more trouble. And there was only this tiny amount, five little buns and two tiny fish. And as we look at the story, if we read it straight, it is clear that Jesus provided miraculously. He transformed a tiny, tiny amount into something that wasn't just enough for people there, but was abundantly more. But just as it's not a story just about hunger, I don't think it's either a story that's primarily about a miracle that Jesus performs. There's something deeper here that we need to see. So what is at the very heart of this miracle? I hope that we will travel through John's account here and see what is at the heart of it. This is the only miracle in the life of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. That suggests that it is really important as all four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all think that this one needs to be recorded. As they try to give us the most complete picture of who Jesus is, this one matters. And like any detective drama, there are all sorts of clues as we read through this, all sorts of clues that put together the answer to the key question, who is Jesus? And I wonder whether we can see them. John gives loads and loads of details through here. And instead of these details leading to confusion, all of them lead into one clear conclusion. I hope we'll come to that and that you'll agree with that in a bit. But there's work for us to do, first of all, to get there. So whether you like dramas, detective dramas or not, whether you're a fan of Sherlock or Agatha Christie or Death in Paradise or Midsummer Murders or Line of Duty or, well, you tell me what your greatest detective drama story is, you have to look at the clues. And some of them you miss, and some of them you've spotted because you're on the lookout for it, but it's only when we put them all together and see where it's heading that we get the answer. So let's move from hungry to thinking about some of the evidence, the details that John gives. Here are just a few that I think are important for us to see. Have a look at verse four, first of all. John records the Jewish Passover feast was near. Now John doesn't just give us this because it's uh, a random event that will help us date what was happening. He gives us this detail to tell us what was in people's minds as they were gathering. This was a season that mattered hugely to the people. It defined them as a nation. It was a season that mattered. It was more important than, well, I was trying to think of some dates that might matter to people, it was more important than Brexit Day for Brexiteers. Or it was more important than the 4th of July for those who celebrate Independence Day. It was more important, well, you name your date, it was more important and significant than that. It was a season that deeply marked out the Jewish people. They celebrated the time when God had rescued them from slavery, when God had provided for them, rescued them, judged, and saved 
and the whole nation gathered to focus on it. So the Passover is this first little bit of evidence. And the Passover comes three times in John's Gospel. He records that three times, uh, so presumably over three years. And each time it's mentioned, John is saying, if you want to discover who Jesus is, understand him in the context of God's rescue. Each time it's important in John's narrative to help us see who Jesus really is and why he's come and what he has come to do. It's vital. Passover. The second are some of the details of John that he records from that day. Have a look at them from verse 5 onwards. Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him. And he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He only asked this to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip's answer, purely cost, financial, we don't have enough money for it. And then Andrew is drawn into it as well. So you see, there are a number of details here. Presumably, Philip and Andrew would have been around as this story was being recalled. And they said, yes, that's exactly how it happened. John fills it with details that point to it being a clear and reliably recorded event. We see from the beginning of this chapter that Jesus was hoping for some time away from the crowds, away with his disciples. He was hoping for some downtime, but the crowds come. Then these disciples are named, the numbers are recorded, the plans of seating them in small groups, and even the grass, the color of the grass, recorded. And all these details come to point us to the fact that the miracle clearly happened and pointed to Jesus' great power. All sorts of details through here. Then look at the end result. Have a look to verse 12 and see just another detail in there. Everyone is satisfied and there is more. Verse 12, when they'd had enough to eat, all of them had had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 12, a significant number for the people of Israel, a pointer that Jesus is saying that he is enough for all of the tribes of Israel. He is sufficient as God's rescuer for all the people of Israel. And then look towards the end of the reading, verses 14 and 15, where we see both the people having a right response, but also one that was so distorted that Jesus needed to be really careful. Verse 14, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You see, the people's response, I think, is really striking. They're beginning to understand who Jesus is, and so they say he is the prophet who was to come. Just as Moses had been a key prophet in the people in the Old Testament, leading the people out of slavery. A promise was there in the Old Testament that there would be another prophet who would come in, in just this same form as Moses did to rescue God's people in the future. And so they're saying, aha, this is God's promised rescuer. 
And the same in the promise of the king. They discovered that Jesus was king. They'd begun to see that, that he was the promised king. Filled with promise in the Old Testament was that there would be a new king who would come and would lead them to freedom in a new and deeper way than they'd ever experienced before. And so the people are beginning to understand that, but see what Jesus says. He knows that actually there's something that they haven't yet grasped, how he is going to bring about that rescue, what sort of king he would be. And as he realizes the crowd want to make him king by force, he realizes that actually what they want is rescue from Roman oppression. And so they want to make him king by force to overthrow the Romans. And we'll see in a moment that God's plan of rescue is so much bigger, so much deeper than simply overthrowing one oppressive nation, one power. He has a greater purpose. And so perhaps the greatest surprise of this whole story is what happens at the end. After an amazing miracle, everyone who had experienced that feeding would have said, we've never encountered anything like this before. Verse 15 At the end, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain to be by himself. Jesus slips away. He has to avoid the crowd because he wants to give the people time to understand who he truly is. And so this event at the beginning of chapter 6 tees up what is going to happen in the rest of chapter 6. We can't look at it all in detail now, but the rest of John chapter 6 is a fascinating and clear focus on what it means to trust that Jesus is the bread of life. The feeding of the 5,000 is a kind of launch pad into this. And some get it, some understand it, and some reject it. So if that is something of the evidence, what does it all point to? What does it all mean? I think once we've seen some of the details in this story, maybe we're ready to recognize that it's more than just a satisfying of hunger one afternoon for a crowd who are by a lake. It's something far deeper than that. It's more than just a miracle showing Jesus' power. It's actually something that will point us to understand who he is and what he's come to do. And I think once we've seen these details, we're in a place to look at the clear and true meaning of this miracle. If you're feeling that you haven't quite got there yet, you're in good company in the other gospel accounts, The disciples take a while to get there, and Jesus confronts them and says, haven't you got it yet? Haven't you understood it yet? And they haven't got it. They haven't understood it yet. But Jesus asks them this, to point them to the deeper meaning, and that's what I hope we can come to right now. When we think about the Passover, we think about one lamb being killed to protect each family from God's judgment at that time when the people were slaves in Egypt. But that Passover lamb pointed forward to a time when there would be one lamb, Jesus dying one death once for all. We've seen already as we've looked at John's gospel John the Baptist's words about Jesus, it's there in chapter 1, verse 29. When John saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this event points us, begins to point us to the reality of how Jesus was going to do that. 
once the people had been rescued from Egypt, they were traveling through the desert. And you'll remember the story of how when they were hungry in the desert, complaining that they had no food, God provided in a miraculous way for them. You remember the manna, a sort of bread-like stuff that came each morning, and the quail that provided them each day with food. I spent just 24 hours in the Sinai Desert when I was a student, and I'd read these verses of the people of Israel traveling through the desert, and I realized, even with provision of water and food, how terrifying it must have been to be without that, in the heat, so far from provision. And that was just me, not a huge crowd of hundreds of thousands traveling through. And yet they learned that God could be trusted to provide. The manna and the quail in the desert showed that God provides for all his people. He can be trusted to give life. And Jesus providing food for the crowd in this bit of the desert, in their hunger, shows that he is the same God who will provide for his people. He can be trusted to give life. I guess many of us will have taken that step of trusting Jesus for the life that he brings. But I wonder whether this account points us to perhaps a deeper understanding of that. He provides not just for our immediate needs, he provides for our most significant needs of forgiveness, of rescue, of new life with God. Jesus is the same God who provided for those people as they traveled through the desert, who provided for that crowd on the hillside, who will provide for us today. We can trust him. There's another part of this meaning in these verses here, where back in Exodus, each family had to gather enough food for each of them for each day. Have a look on to a little bit later in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, where he says... He is the bread of life. Not that he will provide the bread of life, but he is the bread of life and that we come to him to have that life. Have a look at verse 32 of chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. What an amazing promise. Jesus saying that actually all these pointers of God's provision are met fully in him. What a great promise, verse 35. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. That is the satisfaction that Jesus promises to his people. That if we trust in him, we will have abundant and eternal life. I will go on to verse 51 where Jesus takes it a step further. I said that chapter 6 was a, an exploration of all that's sort of teed up at the beginning in this feeding of the 5,000. Have a look on to verse 51. What that means for us. Jesus says, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
is beginning to point what sort of king he will be. He will be one who not overthrows the Roman leaders by force, as people were hoping, but a king who would come by giving his life for the people. And so what we saw to start with, with the Exodus, God's rescue from Egypt, becomes the image of us being rescued from slavery to receive freedom and eternal life through Jesus' death for us. And the Passover feast becomes our remembering and celebrating the death of Jesus. Even as we take Holy Communion here, it's a reminder of how Jesus has given eternal life to us through his death for us. So what does it literally mean for us today? If we've seen that there's something deeper going on here than just hunger being satisfied, something deeper than just Jesus doing a, a miracle with a tiny amount of food and providing for many. Surely tonight it means this for us. That to be disciples, people who say today we follow Jesus, means that we trust him. We trust him when things go well and we trust him when sometimes things are really tough. We trust him when we can see the future, when we can map out what's happening this week, this month, this year, but we also trust him when we can't see, when we're in uncertainty, when we're knocked by life situations, where there's grief, where there's sadness, we can still trust. That God is the God who provides for his people. That Jesus is this God who will provide for us. So a deep, deep, deep sense of trust must be a hallmark of God's people. That's the first thing. Second thing, surely, is that we can turn to Jesus as our Savior. These verses later on in John chapter 6 seem to point to that not just understanding who Jesus is, but coming to him. And that may mean turning to him as saviour for the first time, or it may mean coming to him again and saying, yes, Lord, you are our saviour. We do that, don't we? As we sing together, we express truth that we want to live by. But we can do it in other ways too, as we pray on our own or pray with others. We can say, Lord, you are the one who provides. Help us to trust in you. And then what I'd love to suggest is that this passage and indeed this chapter encourages us to savor the greatness of who Jesus is, the richness of the picture of who Jesus is, to meditate on these details and let them inspire us to have this big picture of who Jesus is. When he says, I am the bread of life, do we realize that actually all the stuff that we look to that we think life is about just pales into insignificance when we realize that Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus, the one who spoke this world into being, was ready to give himself for us. Let's savor the richness of this picture of who Jesus is. He is always enough. He is always able to satisfy. So let me pray, and then let's turn back in worship to acknowledge the greatness of Jesus again. Why don't we stand together? And maybe first of all, in a moment of quiet, why not just acknowledge some of the places that we're tempted to look for meaning and recognize that Jesus is the one who provides that completely.
Maybe also we can acknowledge the places where we are struggling to trust God at the moment. Maybe really tough situations, things that are uncertain, things we're not sure about. And as well as acknowledging that, we can ask God to fill us with a a deeper awareness of his ability to provide. Father, we pray that tonight each of us would savor this rich picture of who Jesus is and of what he has done in giving his life for us. He is the one who came down from heaven to give life to the world. May we trust in him. May we look to him, even when the future may seem uncertain. May we remind ourselves of his greatness. May we remind others of his greatness. And we pray that that will mark us out as his disciples, people who trust him. Father, we pray that by your spirit you will encourage and enable us to walk with faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.